1: Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come
2: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 36. It's the holiday season and Christmas is just around the corner. It's a magical time of year, a time for family, friends, and feasts. Here at Far-Fetched Fables, we're going to celebrate the season with two new stories. And though neither of our offerings this week could be classified as specifically holiday-themed, they are both of a magical nature. Our first story, The Price of Glamour, is a darker period piece set in a Dickensian London where the Fae Folk take residence and hide among the humans with a little help from pixie dust. It was written by Steve Berman, an American editor, author, and short story writer. He has written nearly a hundred published essays and short stories, as well as edited more than two dozen anthologies. His newest collection, Red Caps, features a sequel to this week's story. You can find him online at steveberman.com. The Price of Glamour is read for us by Eric Luke. Eric is the screenwriter of the classic 1985 Joe Dante film Explorers, which is currently in development as a remake. I just love that film, and I'm sure with Eric at the helm, the remake will do it justice. Eric also wrote the comic books Ghosts and Wonder Woman, as well as wrote and directed the Not Quite Human films for Disney TV. His current project, Interference, a meta-horror audiobook about an audiobook that kills is available free on iTunes and at Quillhammer.com. We'll run a promo for interference at the end of the show. You should find that Eric sounds familiar, as this is not the first episode of Far-Fetched Fables Mr. Luke has read for us. So, sit back, grab yourself a nice warm beverage, and give a listen to The Price of Glamour by Steve Berman, as read for us by Eric Luke.
3: These wonders and terrors have been lying by your door and mine ever since we had a door of our own. We had but to go a hundred yards off and see for ourselves. But we never did. Thackeray London, 1844 Tup Smatterpit sat on the back of a chestnut seller's cart, his back warm from resting against the stove. Tup had sprinkled a pinch of powdered glamour over himself, and the old coster driving the wagon believed him to be one of the countless children that roamed Covent Garden's marketplace rather than one of the folk. As the donkey slowly pulled the cart through the crowd, the gentle sway and the constant tick-tocking of his waistcoat was lulling Tup to sleep. He ignored the sounds of vendors calling out their goods and decided to nap a little while. Tup nudged the back of his bent-top hat, once a shiny pearl grey, and now dingy as ash, so that it covered not only the tight curls of red hair, but also his eyes. A chiming sound came from one of the many pockets of his waistcoat. He groaned at being disturbed and pulled out the right watch for the crime. The sweeping hands on the enchanted dial not only showed him he had ten minutes to traverse the west end of London, but also that the dowagers, a pair of crones, were nearly through with a robbery. If Tup was late meeting them, a rival bagman might collect the stolen goods. There were other fences in the city besides Tup's employer, but none as mean-spirited as Bluebottle. He was a spriggan, one of the worst of the Fae, all bloated with spite and bile. Tup didn't dare waste another moment, and leapt down from the cart, nearly knocking over a woman with a basket of fresh flowers. Slightly out of breath, after dashing through side streets and avenues, Tup arrived near Hyde Park with time to spare. The watch stopped chiming a moment later, one of the slender hands pointing where to go next. In the shadows of the alley, the dowagers towered over a child shivering and huddled against the brick wall. They were an ancient pair, and no one remembered their names. One's eyes were clear, her sister's blind, and covered with a grey film. Otherwise they looked identical, tall and thin, almost brittle-looking, with fingers that resembled twigs. Their long hair was touched with silver, and they had never abandoned their sackcloth clothing for anything contemporary, as had so many of the Fay who dwelled in London. The clear-eyed sister, clutching an armful of pretty new clothes to her chest, snatched the bonnet from the head of the girl— The dowagers, glamoured to resemble rosy-cheeked maids, lured children from the street with promises of sweets, only to strip them of everything of worth. The blind one leaned down and tapped the girl on the forehead twice. Leave us,
1: child! Vex us not! We have taken enough!
3: Enough! hissed her sister. As the child ran past him, still crying, Tup nodded to the dowagers and tipped his hat. Ladies, he held up his sack, the mark of a bagman's trade. A frock, a bonnet, a petticoat. The first dowager unceremoniously dropped the clothes into the bag. Her blind sister held up a glowing coin the size of a penny.
1: Stolen laughter. Bluebottle will pay well for a child's humour, no? Five bags of glamour, hissed her blind
3: sister. "'No doubt, milady, no doubt,' he watched as she dropped the glittering piece after the fine clothes. Tup reached into the bag and pulled out a wine bottle and drew the cork. The smell of cumin lacing the wine filled the air. The dowagers drew closer, their hands out, fingers curling and curling. Centuries might have passed since they plagued the children of the Celts, appeased only by such a spiced drink, yet their thirst remained.' "'It's been so long, sister,' the blind one whispered, "'a pale worm of a tongue wriggling over her lips. "'Give us the bottle,' the other sister's fingernails swept close to his face. "'Tup smiled kindly. "'Oh, I shall, I shall, but I'm of a mind for that bit of laughter you threw in. "'Blue Bottle will give you glamour enough for the finery,' "'he let the bottle come close to their hands. "'Agreed?' As he had guessed, they did not hesitate. Yes, they groaned, and the blind one took the bottle and drank deeply, her lips becoming stained with the wine. Her sister did not wait long before grabbing the bottle. Humming a merry tune as he left them, Tup withdrew the laughter from the sack and slipped it into one of the pockets of his waistcoat. That bauble was worth a hundred petticoats. The magic charm Tup had spoken before heading into the sewers had nearly faded, and the mire he stood on was beginning to stick to his shoes. But damn Cagmag would not stop digging through the surrounding filth long enough to say anything more than a few words at once. The slimy troll would tower over most Fae if it ever stood upright, but down in the tunnels it could move about only on all fours. Cagmag dipped its hooked hands deep into the muck, then leaned forward to bring a nose that resembled a notched dagger low to sniff around. Tup was about to depart when the sewer hunter pulled out a reeking handful and sighed majestically. "'What is it? A copper pot? A candlestick?'
1: Pigsty sweepings!'
3: The troll opened its black-lipped maw and took a healthy bite of the muck. Tup reached for the robbery watch and checked the crime. Nothing. He tapped the dial lightly. The hand still clearly indicated that something of worth was down there, seized by Cagmag. Ah, here's a right bit. The troll lifted out more from the filth. Its lamp-like yellow eyes narrowed a moment. Had to hide it. There's thieves about. Tup leaned in closer, but the mass Cagmag pulled up looked no better than the sweepings. Of course there's thieves. "'This one's too bold,' the troll's dark tongue licked to reveal
1: a fine riding boot. "'Heard a leprechaun complaining some of his goods were stolen from his shop!' Tup stifled a chuckle.
3: "'Leprechauns were crooked cobblers and deserved a bit of hardship. More than likely, it a customer they cheated having a bit of satisfaction.' The troll finished cleaning off the boot and held it out to Tup. "'You stole that?'
1: Aye, Cagmag tipped it back. Oh, sorry. There's still a bit of foot left in it. Anxious I was.
3: By sunset, Tup was weary from collecting all over London. He arrived late to his next appointment and looked around the emptying marketplace, trying to spot the card shop the cheats watch had led him to. He roamed the area to no avail. Desperate, he ventured into a nearby gin-parlour. Gas lamps that reflected off mirrored panes of glass brightly lit the crowded establishment. Tup did his best not to be jostled as he took a winding path through the room. He spotted the shabbily-dressed hobgoblin with his mouse-like whiskers and tufted tail beside a flavoured liquor stand. The hobgoblin, when he was sober, was skilled at broading, "'changing the faces of cards with a little bit of magic to cheat unsuspecting men. "'The fairy rapped on the bar to get the server's attention.
1: "'Another celebrated butter,
3: my good man!' "'Tup put a hand over the aromatic dram as the hobgoblin rose it to his wet lips. "'Not thinking of drinking away all the pence, are you, Rob? "'Mr. Hobbs to you, sir!' The hobgoblin nervously glanced around at the surrounding humans. His long whiskers had been oiled and curled at the tips to resemble a man's moustache. At least amid this company. Fine, then. There's the matter of your debt. Or shall I tell Bluebottle there's to be no payment? Hobbs blanched at the thought and licked his lips. Oh! Oh, no, not that. I nearly earned enough to pay what I owes. "'You have to put in a good word for me, Tup. "'Tell Bluebottle that without more glamour I'd have to leave London.' "'The hobgoblin moved the glass from underneath Tup's palm, "'careful not to spill a drop. "'Come now, a dry swallow's a bad thing, we all knows.' "'He rubbed his throat as if parched. "'Tup could see that Hobbs was nearly drunk. "'Another few shots, and his face would turn bluish and he'd pass out. "'Where's the day's take?'
1: "'On me person.' It's not safe to hide anything any more.
3: It took Tupp a moment to realize what Hobbs alluded to. The mysterious thief, not you, too. Hobbs nodded. It's no tall tale. Quite a few of the folk have been robbed. Happened to that little portoon that's been a thief in carriages. And Jenny Greenteeth had brought in quite a haul from a body she, uh, well,
1: she said she found on the banks of the Thames. Kept it all in a cubbyhole by the docks. "'but when Jenny went for it, was gone. "'Now who'd be so daft as to upset old Jenny?' "'Tup felt bad
3: for any fay foolish enough to steal from Jenny, "'one of the more mean-spirited of the folk. "'The thief must be a shire pixie, new to the city, "'and ignorant of who not to cross. "'It hadn't been so long since Tup himself had come from Wessex, "'seeking his fortune in the grand chaos that was London. "'He hadn't been any wiser.' "'and was still paying the price. "'The memory bothered him, making him anxious. "'He was tempted to buy a drink himself. "'Enough of such talk,' he held up his sack. "'The coin.' "'The hobgoblin nodded and shook his right arm a moment "'before leaning in close and letting it drop over the mouth of the sack. Pence and groats and shillings tumbled out of Hobbes's sleeve. "'The hobgoblin's sharp fingers snatched the last coin, "'a guinea, before it fell.' I'll be needing this to stay warm tonight. Sack heavy with the day's haul, Tup knew he should be heading to Blue Bottles, but made his way to the Royal Exchange, an immense stone building central to human commerce. The small shops along the front, little more than enclosed stands that offered books or newspapers or stationery, were closing for the night. Only a few people walked the Exchange's halls, and if they bothered to notice Tup, Thanks to a pinch of glamour, he seemed nothing more than a lost youth. On the upper floor of the northern side of the building was a coffee-house, nearly deserted at that late hour. He moved to the back and opened the door of a storeroom. Tup easily climbed over the aromatic sacks of beans to reach a forgotten trap-door in the ceiling that led to a small attic and his home. A man would have to stoop, but being just four feet tall, Tup needed only to worry about his hat being knocked off his head. At the far end of the room was a mound of goose feathers that served as a bed. As tempting as it was to relax a while, he could not afford the luxury at the moment. He moved to the wall, his fingers finding and pulling free the loose stone. In the niche was a mound of treasure, the cream secretly skimmed from the milk of Tup's tasks over the past year. He reached into his waistcoat pocket, found the laughter he had bartered from the dowagers, and added it to the pile. Bluebottle, that artless, plume-plucked maggot-pie, would be surprised at such a lovely hoard. Tup was especially proud of the mourning brooch containing a lock of hair from a woman with the sight. Took quite a bit of trickery to wrest the brooch from a dreary Irish anku What with all that wearing black and a gaunt face pinched like he was eating something sour, no wonder the bloke found work as a professional mourner. Tup's mind was often nimbler than his fingers, yet he was not so crafty as to have escaped servitude. He regretted again, for the thousandth time, being so impetuous when he first came to London. He had been told there was but one source for a good quality glamour, the fine powder that enabled any Fay to disguise itself to humans without the sight, a necessity to survive in London. All the iron the humans used to build and live in the city eroded a Fay's natural ability. Tup, new to the city, lacked the coin or the goods to buy from Bluebottle, so there was only one recourse. He had thought himself up to the task, sneaking into the second-hand shop after nightfall and exploring the back rooms, only to be easily caught by the spriggan. Tup was lifted up by his shirt collar and saw that cages with frightened pixies hung from the rafters. Bluebottle would have dropped him into a massive grinder with rusty gears and teeth and made glamour out of him if Tup hadn't been quick with his words. He begged and flattered, promising whatever services the spriggan desired. Bluebottle listened and made the little fay swear to serve as his bagsman for twelve years one for each of Tup's fingers that tried to steal from him. He wondered how long before this thief would make the same mistake. As he walked down the dingiest alley in all of creation, nearer and nearer to Bluebottle's rag-and-bottle shop, Tup's mood darkened. The door was two planks of wood nailed together, and the outside had been painted a jaundiced yellow so that even the oldest and simplest scavengers could find the shop. Bluebottle traded glamour for stolen goods that he would sell back to humans. Nearly every fay in the city owed him, some far worse than others. Tup walked in to find Bluebottle mending the frame of a wooden cage. The Spriggan had a squat, lumpy body. His scruffy jowls and bald pate almost made him resemble a man. But the eyes were different, too small and shiny. "'Ah!' "'My little coney's back!' his voice had a rasp, one almost painful to hear. Tup swallowed his rage at the insult. He hefted up the sack onto the counter. "'A fine haul today!' Bluebottle narrowed his eyes. "'We'll
1: see!'
3: The Spriggan put down the cage and snapped his fingers. On the counter, to his right, rested an immense ledger. The book opened, and the pages flipped on their own. Tup emptied the sack and Bluebottle began rummaging. He picked up a tin of tobacco and shook it near his small ear.
1: One tin of Byer's Aromatic Cherry Tobacco, full but dented along one side. From the Glaystick. Tup mentioned.
3: Along the pages of the ledger ink blossomed, adding in the entry. A faint whisper of
1: seven pence
3: rose from the leather binding. The spriggan reached for the young girl's clothes.
1: "'The Dowagers?'
3: Tup nodded.
1: "'One bonnet, one frock, one petticoat, "'the latter with slight tear along the shoulder. Six shillings,' said the magic ledger.
3: "'That's not even a bag of glamour's worth,' Bluebottle shrugged. "'Tup swallowed his worry that the Dowagers would dare tell the Spriggan "'about his private deal with them for the laughter. "'He rattled off the names of the other Fay who stole the goods he brought, then he grabbed his sack and headed for the door, but was pulled back by a hand at his collar. A moment. Bluebottle tapped the pages of the ledger.
1: You filled your snuff-box the other day with glamour, my coney. Are you paying for it now? Or shall your debt to me grow greater? Tup became flushed, but kept his voice calm.
3: All I have left is a twopence. "'You shaved my earnings down to a few pence,' the soft voice of the book spoke.
1: "'Tup Smatterpit, owing eighty-one pounds to date. (laughs) "'Heh, might as well be a weight in gold. You'll always be bound to me.'
3: "'Not true,' Tup chirped.
1: "'Oh?' the spriggan leaned over the counter. His breath was rank. I'd free you from your service this very moment if you paid your tally. Tup
3: left the shop with Bluebottle's coarse laughter at his back. He ran all the way to the exchange, giddy with the notion that, thanks to his hoard and the Spriggans' ignorance, he'd soon be free. But there he found the stone that hid his cash, had already been moved. The niche was empty, his treasure completely gone. "'Tup choked back a sob. "'All his work, all his savings over the years, all gone. "'He'd be working for that artless cloppo forever.' "'In a sad daze Tup wandered "'until he fell into a small crowd "'watching a street musician playing folk tunes on his hurdy-gurdy. "'Nearby, a young girl sold seed cakes from a basket. "'Tup found a halfpenny in his pocket, "'his last remaining coin, and bought one of the treats.' "'nibbling it quickly and not leaving a single crumb on his fingerless gloves. "'One of the watches began to chime, "'and he was tempted to throw it across the street. "'Why hadn't it rung for him? "'Every theft by a fae should ring the magic watches. "'Out of instinct he looked at the dial, "'barely caring that a tiny boggin was picking pockets. "'It had only been a couple of hours since he had left for blue bottles. "'There might still be time to catch the thief and recover his goods.' He needed help, though, and there was only one of the folk with the necessary gift. Tup knew that the Rook Girl had an appetite for glamour, though not truly a thief. She needed to cover up her bird feet if she wanted to charm men into buying her drinks and meals. He had been searching for her for over an hour, dashing through the better parts of London. He finally found her gazing at herself in the reflection of a jeweller's window. Her long black tresses flowed from beneath, a dark feathered hat. "'that had seen better days. "'She looked down at him with a sad smile. "'I've nothing for your master, little one.' "'As if to prove her poverty, "'she lifted up a dress to show not stocking feet, "'but scaly claws. "'Tup reached into a pocket and withdrew his snuff-box. "'He opened the lid and showed her the glittering dust within. "'Nearly full. "'Her eyes went wide, and he snapped the lid shut, Perhaps a trade is in order? A few moments later, her dark children, the ravens that spent their days at the Tower of London, were settling on his shoulders. Their eyes were the sharpest in the city, and little escaped their notice. With raw cackles, they told him the one he wanted was down on Cutler Street, in the seedy neighbourhood of Hound's Ditch. When Tup rounded the corner onto Cutler, the only figure in the street was leaving a dilapidated building. Tup might have ignored the fellow, who seemed almost lost underneath a heavy coat, had he not flipped up a shining coin, easily recognizable as the stolen laughter, into the air a moment before catching it in his palm. You there! Tup called out. The figure turned, a face going pale with fear. Then the thief ran, not down the street, but back into the hovel. Tup followed only a few steps behind him. Inside was dank and smoky. The thief dashed up a rickety flight of stairs that groaned even under Tup's light weight. He passed open doorways of rooms with people crowded around tables with cards of throwing dice. On the next floor, there were cries as the humans wagered on a pair of burly men boxing in a corner. Tup stifled his curiosity to look further and continued chasing his quarry. Ahead of him, the thief threw open a trap door to the rooftop— Tup was almost nipping at his heels. Overhead, the London night sky was clouded from belching chimneys. The thief soon neared the edge of the roof, but did not stop or slow. With a mad leap, arms swinging, he covered the gap to the nearest building. Tup easily jumped after him. The thief tripped on his coat and fell onto his side. Tup landed right on the rogue's back, bearing him to the ground. "'Quite a chase,' said Tup. "'trying to catch his breath. "'But now there's the matter of what is mine.' "'When Tup turned the thief over, "'he expected to see the slender features of an elf "'or a scraggly brown-furred boggart, "'not the face of a scared sixteen-year-old human boy. "'The fairy drew back in shock. "'A child. A human child. "'How could this be?' "'Tup's mind whirled, but could not disbelieve. "'It made sense.' when he thought about it explaining why his watches never chimed at any of the thefts the boy glared at tup so what are you the seventh son of a seventh son tup placed a foot on the boy's chest keeping him down for the moment have a waterboard stone what what are you talking about what gives you the sight the lad gave an embarrassed smile was well, only a bit of so- me eyes "'Back a few years I I worked as a climbing boy, "'served a right foul-mouthed sweep I did, "'who threatened to burn me feet "'if I didn't climb chimneys fast enough.' "'The boy shook his head ruefully. "'One day, found me in this tight bit. "'Something crawled above me, but weren't a rat. "'You'd think that, well, maybe not you, sir. "'As it left, it dropped some soot on me face, "'and as I blinked my eyes, "'I saw a little fellow scrambling
1: out of the top.' Ever since then, I see things.
3: Brownies, Tup knew, lurked in chimneys on cold mornings, troublesome little ones that keep to houses. A scattering of ash from the heel in the eye was as good as any fairy ointment. Tup looked over the boy. He was thin, almost swallowed up by the overcoat. His hair was dark, and his eyes were green, like wild clover. A bit cleaned up, and he'd be handsome enough for a Court plaything— You have a name? Lind. Right, then, Tup offered a hand. The youth cautiously took it and stood up. So, what now? You're not going to be cursing me? Now there's the problem. If it were known that a human had robbed the folk, Tup grimaced at the thought, well, more than a few of your kind would find themselves at a horrid end. Tup removed his hat and scratched at his head. "'If you return the things you stole from me, I'd be of a mind to let you go "'and keep this our little secret.' "'If I could, sir, I would. Honest. "'But everything's sold or lost to cards. "'Could barely keep this coat and the bauble.' "'He pulled out the shining penny. "'Seems so pretty, I didn't have the heart to bet it.' "'Tup took the laughter from the boy's hand. "'All that's left?' he choked out the words. It would take him years to amass enough again to buy his freedom. He was doomed to serve Bluebottle forever, running around sewers with trolls, consorting with the dregs of the city. He turned to Lynde, You, spleeny, reeling, ripe fool! I wouldn't worry about magistrates after we get through with you. Dancing till your feet bleed, making your belly swell, your eyes... Pop, he poked the boy in the stomach. "'No, sir, please, sir, a few days, and I'll repay everything. "'I'm a fine cracksman, a master burglar!' "'Lynn said and puffed out his thin chest. "'Ask any roundhound's ditch or Whitechapel. "'There's not a house I can't break into. "'A few nights' work is all I need.' "'Tup considered a moment. "'In truth, he lacked the power to do more than annoy the boy for the rest of his days.' He was surprised that Lind offered to make amends. He had always thought humans a rather dull, cowardly lot. Perhaps not all were so bad. A fine cracksman, Lind grinned. I none better. The boy's bravado amused Tup. In truth, he must have a good measure of skill to have pulled off the thefts. Perhaps there was a way. Bluebottle had to have a small fortune in coin after selling all the stolen goods to the humans. It would be fitting revenge to have the boy break in, swipe enough coin to pay off his debt, and then be free of service before the Spriggan even realized the theft. If you do wish to make amends, meet me here tomorrow night. Lynn nodded and grabbed hold of Tup's hand, shaking it. Thank you, sir. I won't be late. Tup watched as the boy ran off. He told himself not to worry, that he put so much faith in one who wasn't even his own. Tup knew that every night, well past midnight, Bluebottle dined at the Dustyards, where the city's dust and refuse was heaped and sifted for valuables. The Spriggan would devour great handfuls of grit and grime. So... Late the following evening, he led Lind to the closed rag-and-bottle shop. "'We're not going through the front door, are we?' "'No,' did that years ago. "'It's warded, alarmed, and brings Bluebottle fast.' Tup walked around to the side of the building. The wall facing them was crumbling brick and looked dangerous to climb. Old, closed shutters near the slanted roof blocked the only opening other than the front door. The youth unbuttoned his greatcoat, and withdrew his jemmy, the short crowbar made infamous by burglars. He gave the iron rod a bit of a playful spin in his hand. An easy job! Maybe so, until we are caught and ground to dust. Lynn's face grew serious. He slipped out of the coat. Beneath, he wore only a threadbare linen shirt and trousers. He thrust the jemmy into a back pocket and rubbed his hands together a moment for warmth before moving to the wall and finding a grip in the loose mortar above his head. Tup watched Lind climb and admired the dexterity of the boy. Even when one of Lind's hands misjudged a crack and slipped, he remained quiet and recovered in an instant, swinging his weight onto his other side. Soon he was next to the shutters and carefully prying them open. In the shadows, Tup leaned back against the wall and kept his eye on the street. While he waited... He idly considered how he would spend his new freedom. He might become a messenger, or perhaps a guide to fay new to the city. Then he heard the sound of muttering. He peered out from under the brim of his hat to see, off in the distance, an ungainly shape approaching. His ears caught the word hogs being mentioned again and again. Tup realized then that sometimes pigs are let loose at the dustyards to feed on anything edible. No doubt Bluebottle's meal had already been well picked over by the hogs, and he was returning home, hungry and cranky. Tup doubted Lind had had enough time to loot the dark shop. He was torn by the urge to run and leave the boy to his fate, one well-deserved, he told himself. After all, he did rob the folk, and the urge to rescue him. The boy had been true to his word so far, and that could not be forgotten. As he started to climb the wall, "'Tup swore to himself that he should never, ever have thought life in London "'among the humans would be thrilling. "'He easily passed through the small window, and though he fell over ten feet, "'Tup landed like a cat on a thick table in the back room. "'The inside of the shop was pitch black. "'He whispered out to Lynde, and heard a quiet answer next to him. "'Hurry, blue-bottles returned!' Even as he said it, Tup heard the sound of a key turning in the door's heavy lock.
1: I haven't found a penny yet,
3: came a whisper back. Damn, Tup said under his breath. His eyes had begun to adjust to the darkness, and he got down from the table and found himself next to Lind.
1: Stay absolutely still.
3: The floorboards creaked as the Spriggan moved through the shop, and a nearby door opened as Bluebottle entered the cavernous back room. "'He shuffled over to the far corner, "'at one point
1: passing within inches of the pair,
3: "'and lay down on a bed built into the wall. "'On a shelf near the spriggan's head "'was a familiar chest "'from which Bluebottle paid out Tup his pitiful earnings. "'They waited, holding their breath, "'as Bluebottle shifted about on the bed, "'finally becoming still "'and loosing the occasional snore. "'Tup!' Motioned toward the chest. "'Beside him, "'Lynn nodded, "'but then went in the opposite direction, "'rooting quietly through the Spriggans' "'personal effects. "'Tup could not decide on a fitting curse "'for the boy
1: as he got down from the table. "'He crept toward the shelf, "'pausing twice when Bluebottle "'shifted about in his sleep. "'Finally, he stood up on his
3: toes "'to reach the shelf. "'As soon as his fingers "'touched the coffer, the robbery watch in his waistcoat pocket began to chime. Bluebottle awoke in an instant. Tup was grabbed roughly before he had a chance to flee and shaken about so that the many watch chains he wore jingled. A
1: thief! My little coney never learned!
3: Bluebottle brought his face close to Tup's. The Spriggan's mouth opened wide, revealing many rows
1: of dust and grime-covered teeth. So... "'Which grinder will it be?' he snapped his jaws in anticipation. "'Tup
3: closed his eyes, ready for the end. "'When all of a sudden Bluebottle was howling into the little fay's ear, "'he dared a look and saw the Spriggan screaming in pain, "'and behind him Lind stabbing at Bluebottle's foot with the iron jemmy. "'Tup was dropped, and as soon as his feet met the floor, "'Lind grabbed and pushed him toward a small door.' The boy followed, shutting the door behind them and jamming the crowbar into the frame. The wood rattled as Bluebottle pounded away. The smaller room was faintly lit from the glow of cages hanging from the ceiling beams. There were no other exits. They were trapped. Tup remembered now where he was. The Spriggans' glamour larder. The imprisoned Pixies, all no taller than Lynn's forearm, even with their glittery wings, were woken by the noise. Thin, sad faces peered out between the bars. A few weak hands stretched out in silent plea. Tup looked over at Lind, who held his chest tightly, as if hurt. Are you all right? Lind gave a grin, the sort only a half-crazed fool who craved excitement wore. Good, Tup moved the table with a grinder beneath the nearest cage. When I give the word, you'll let him in. The boy looked a bit perplexed, but nodded. Tup worked as fast as he could, always mindful of the curses and shouts of his former employer. Finally, he was done, and called out to Lind, who tore loose the jemmy and jumped back. Bluebottle would have charged into the room if not for the wave of flying pixies that swarmed over him. His angry cries quickly changed to ones of shock, and then screams of pain as the freed Fay bit at his jowls, ripped his ears, and poked his eyes. Bluebottle collapsed backward, and Tup and Lynn jumped over him. The pixies continued to swarm over the spriggan, and their fingers were quickly stained crimson. Off in the distance came the sounds of a whistle. "'The night watch!' said the boy, tugging at Tup's arm.
1: "'A constable
3: heard the screams!' Together they climbed back out of the shop, though the boy seemed oddly laboured. Once they dropped down to the alley beside the shop. They fled. Tup led Lynde through the twisted lanes of a slum the folk knew well. They ended up at a small pub. Tup took his seat at an empty table near the fireplace and lifted up two fingers. The serving girl nodded. Lynde looked around nervously. The other patrons were noticeably different from most Londoners. Some had slender ears ending in points or noses longer than their drinking glasses or delicate cricket wings that flapped in time to the fiddler playing near the fire. The boy shivered, still clutching his chest. So, now what? Tup thanked the gal who brought the drinks, and caught Lynn staring at her back, which was hollow, like a serving bowl. The pixies won't leave much a blue bottle for the coppers to find. I'm my own master. Once more. What of me? "'planning on turning me over to them?' "'He glanced around him. "'The thought crossed my mind. "'Tup took a long sip of the mulled wine, "'enjoying its warmth and spices. "'But you did save my life, "'and for that I'm thankful and forgiving. "'Your debt is paid.' "'The boy looked disappointed. "'So that's it? "'After what we just did? "'Bloody hell! "'After all I've seen of late!' "'Relax!' Tup motioned toward the boy's untouched cup. "'Have a drink!' The Fay was inwardly pleased at Lind's complaint. He had wondered if the boy would simply disappear after the night's adventure. He was surprised to find himself growing fond of Lind. "'At least let me pay for me own!' The boy reached into his shirt and withdrew several small bags that he dropped onto the table between them. Tup stared. At the familiar bags a moment, utterly astounded. Where did you get these? Oh, a good cracksman never leaves without little something. Found em in that back room. Lind reached for his cup and sniffed before drinking. He smacked his lips in appreciation. Open em up. They're filled with gold dust. Tup laughed and undid the ties of one. His fingers dug inside to lift up a pinch of glittering powder. My boy, this isn't gold, he leaned in close. It's glamour, and worth a great deal to the folk. Lin's eyes widened.
1: So, what are we going to do with it?
3: We? Tup chuckled good-naturedly. Aye, the boy hefted one of the bags. We work well together. And you'd want to be partners? With one of the folk? Tup wrapped both his hands around Lind's. It's risky, I warn you. He looked into the boy's eyes, almost mesmerized by their merry green. Lind answered with a grin. What's life? Without a little danger. Partners,
1: it is.
2: Listening to that story leaves me feeling just a bit cold and damp. Steve does a wonderful job of world-building while setting the stage for mischief and just a little bit of mayhem. Perhaps the orphans of Dickens' time were just glamoured folk. The possibility boggles. Time to step away from dreary old London town and off to our next destination. Our next story takes us to a school of magic. No, not that school... magic, you won't find he who must not be named here, but a school for fledgling magicians nonetheless. Our next offering of the hour is The Magicers by Terry Dowling. Mr. Dowling is one of Australia's most respected and internationally acclaimed writers of science fiction, dark fantasy, and horror, and author of the multi-award winning Tom Rhinoceros saga. He has been called Australia's finest writer of horror by Locus Magazine its premier writer of dark fantasy by All Hallows, and its most acclaimed writer of Dark Fantastic by Cemetery Dance Magazine. The year's best fantasy and horror series features more horror stories by Terry in its 21-year run than by any other writer. Terry's award-winning horror collections are Basic Black, Tales of Appropriate Fear, an International Horror Guild award winner for Best Collection in 2007, and is regarded as one of the best recent collections of contemporary horror by the American Library Association, An Intimate Knowledge of the Night, and the World Fantasy Award-nominated Blackwater Days. His most recent titles are Amberjack, Tales of Fear and Wonder, and his debut novel, Clowns at Midnight, which the Guardian called an exceptional work that bears comparison to John Fowle's The Magis. In addition to all his praiseworthy work, Mr. Dowling has written three computer adventures, Schism, Mysterious Journey, Schism 2, Chameleon, and Sentinel, Descendants in Time, as well as co-edited The Essential Ellison and The Jack Vance Treasury, among many other titles. He lives in Sydney, Australia. His homepage can be found at TerryDowling.com. The Magickers is narrated by the splendid voice of Grand Dunlop, Graham is a software solution architect and voice actor living in Melbourne, Australia. He is the sound producer for the horror podcast Pseudopod and used to host the YA podcast Cast of Wonders. You can find him on Google+, and he occasionally tweets as at Kibitzer on Twitter. So, top off your toddies and give a listen to Graham Dunlop reading Terry Dowling's The Magickers. <laughs>
4: Twice upon a time, there was someone named Samuel Raven Pardew. The first to bear the name was a 19th century blacksmith who tried his hand as a toother during the Napoleonic War. In the morning following the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, while collecting teeth from the newly killed to sell to dentists in the big cities, he was spotted by an English patrol and shot as a looter. The second Samuel Raven-Pardieu was that man's great-to-the-fifth-grandson, and on the morning of 24 May 2006, this second Sam, two weeks past his fourteenth birthday, one full month after enrolling in the special classes at Desider, was sitting in his favourite spot in all of the sprawling Desider estate, when Bettina Anders found him. "'I knew you'd be here,' Bettina said in that special know-it-all tone she had." Haven't forgotten what today is? Of course not, Sam said, as if he could, as if he needed to be reminded. Key interview day. His first one-on-one interview with Lucius Prand, one of the world's greatest magicians. The real surprise was that Bettina was bothering to talk to him at all. In his four weeks at Decida, in both the ordinary curriculum classes and the special magica classes they shared day after day, She hadn't spoken more than a few dozen words to him. Now here she was, this standoffish fourteen-year-old, the one the other eighteen students, Sam included, called the princess behind her back, pretending to be friendly. Pretending. It couldn't be genuine. Sam was sitting in his special spot, of course. There were twelve stone plinths flanking the old ornamental approach to the front steps of the main house at Desider, Twelve marble pedestals, hopelessly overgrown with thorn bushes and bracken, except for this one, the one Sam had cleared himself and now occupied. The large house stood on its rise behind them, overlooking the grounds of the sprawling country estate. Bettina didn't leave. That was another marvel. She just stood there, dark-haired and, yes, princess pretty if you thought about it at all, and just seemed to be watching the day. Well, I hope it goes well, she said, and astounded him even more. Sam couldn't fathom it, Bettina Anders saying such a thing, and with it came another thought. What does she know about my key interview that I don't? What happens at a key interview with Lucius? Should I ask her? Sam played it safe and said nothing. Why ask, only to have her snub him again? He'd been gazing at what lay concealed in the thorn bushes between the plinths when she'd arrived. Now he looked out over the estate as well, the spacious grounds set amid these rolling green hills under a brilliant autumn sky. He was determined not to let Bettina Anders know what he'd really been looking at. That was his secret, his one special thing at dessida But she lingered. Against all reason, all sense, Bettina stayed. So do you have your question ready, she said. My what? Key interview day is also first question day, if no one's told you. Lucius will probably ask you to ask one. He usually does. Sam couldn't help himself. A question? What question? Ah, Bettina said, which translated as, so you don't know. Just what I said. He'll ask if you have a question. Do you? one question. I've got lots of questions. Like when do the real magic classes start? Not just these mind exercises we keep doing all the time. You need to be patient, Bettina said and looked anything but that herself. It's worth it. It struck Sam right then that she'd been told to come and find him and say all this. With two months more experience at Decida, she was probably following someone's instructions, a script of some kind. Maybe Lucius had sent her himself. It was certainly possible. Where would you rather be right now, Bettina? he said, and could see he had surprised her. What? This is my spot. I love sitting here, just watching the grounds and the house. But you don't want to be here now. Where would you rather be? The old Bettina defiance was back in a flash. She couldn't help herself. You're so smart and standoffish, you tell me! Standoffish? That threw Sam. That couldn't be right. He wasn't the stand-offish one. Well, I haven't known you long, but it has to be the top of that tower, Sam said, and pointed back up the hill to Desider's huge front doors at the end of the overgrown approach promenade. Above that big doorway rose a modest central tower, three stories tall, with a big bronze bell on an ornate stand at the top and a flag flying on a flagpole or beside the lake, down behind the trees there, somewhere away and safe. Bettina stared at him, not because he was necessarily right in naming either place, how could he possibly know, but probably because of that final sentence and final word. The look between them might have been special, except that Bettina was guarding, was more protective about some things than even Sam was. His last comment had probably been too close to the mark. She had to say something to deal with the vulnerability it brought with it. "'As if I'd tell you,' she said, like Princess Bettina on any other day. "'And don't think I don't know why you like sitting here. I can see your silly statue down in there.' She gestured at the thicket beyond the plinth where Sam sat, then stalked off towards the house. Sam could have hated her right then, watching her go, but knew that such an emotion was to cover something else.' just like Bettina's own sudden outburst. She was guarding, protecting herself. Sam was doing the same. It's the only one left, he might have called after her as she disappeared through the double doorway. But he didn't. He looked instead at the toppled form hidden in the thorn thicket, a figure of dirty white stone, the same old marble as the plinths, toppled and abandoned long ago. Whatever statuary he had adorned the other plinths was long gone. The house itself was maintained well enough, but the grounds of the Desider estate had definitely seen better days. Let her tell the other students about the statue. Let her tell their three teachers or the other staff, Lucius himself, for all he cared. And standoffish, how dare she? Sam looked at his watch. Nine forty-five. Almost time. Key interview. Just him and Lucius at last. But Bettina had no reason to lie. First question day. What would he ask? What did one ask the man who was probably the world's greatest magician, having been handpicked and paid to come to Desider in the Southern Highlands on a Pran scholarship to hone his latent skills, become a magician or magicka, whatever that was? It had never been made clear. That had to be the question. What's the difference between a magician and a magicka? Sam looked at his watch again, 9.50 And that was when Martin Mayhew appeared in Desider's big double doorway Happy Martin, always smiling, always happy to be in the world Tall, blonde and handsome, Nordic looking and easy in his buff-coloured house fatigues and sandals Greeting every morning with his arms spread wide and his head back If the stories were true, breathing in the day Martin was in charge of the household staff, and here he was to make sure that Sam didn't miss his 10 a.m. meeting. Martin gave a big sweeping gesture of summons. It's time, Sam! Take care, Rufio, Sam called to the stone figure lying in the thicket, his special name for his secret friend. Then he was up in a flash, off the plinth and up the steps. Rufio? Martin asked as they headed for Lucius Pran's large office in the northwestern wing. My name for him, Sam said. He's the only one left. Do you remember the others? Sam knew he could ask Martin things like this and be safe about it. Sorry, best Sam. Before my time, I'm afraid. But ask Master Lucius. He'll know. He's lived here all his life. You're allowed to bring up things like that during your interview. Anyone else scheduled today, Martin? Sam had to ask it. Martin shook his head. Not today. Today is your day, Sam lucius has been looking forward to it then they were at the large oaken door to lucius pran's private office and martin was knocking good luck best sam martin said opening the door for him and in sam went it was a wonderful room sam saw a true magician's room large and high-ceilinged, with bookcases lining most of the wood-panelled walls and fabulous miniature engines of glass and metal working away on a benchtop on one side. Against the far wall was a suit of medieval armour with, incredibly, two heads, two fiercely snouted visored helmets set side by side on big spiky shoulders. Where could that have come from, Sam wondered? How could it be real? There were maps on the walls between the bookshelves, Mercator projections of land after fabulous land with exotic names like Sabertanus Major and Andastaban Arcanus. Small pins with demon heads pinned maps atop others in some places. There were so many. Lucius Pran's huge desk was set on a raised dais before four tall lead-light windows that opened onto views of the lawns and forests of Desidera, windows that framed glimpses of rolling hills and held great masses of fluffy cumulus in an achingly blue sky. So many things sat on that wide wonderful desk, but the least noticeable were the three planetary globes Sam had learned about in his Introductions to Magic classes. The closest was the Earth as Sam knew it, but joined by seventeen silver threads to the second, which was the overworld, "'set with its spell towers and mage points. "'That orb was joined in turn by red wires to the third, "'which represented the underworld, all blacks and reds, "'with threads of hot bright copper picking out the various sunder points. "'But Lucius Prand wasn't at his desk. "'He sat in one of the two big armchairs before a fireplace "'in which was set not a conventional fire, "'but rather a slowly turning image of a burning city. "'Welcome, Sam. Lucha said, standing to greet him, shaking his hand warmly. He wore true wizard black, of course, soft black woolen top, black slacks, black shoes. None of the star and moon robes or mysterious pentagram stuff he wore for his concerts and television performances, not today. His eyes glittered under silver-grey hair that swept back like a wave. He was in his late fifties, they said but others had told Sam that a zero should be added to any age you felt tempted to put him at. Lucius Pran, they said, had been present at the death of the ancient city, the burned forever in his fireplace. It was difficult for Sam not to keep glancing this way and that, studying some new thing or other that suddenly caught his eye. But at last he made himself sit in the other armchair and face Lucius, who was pouring them both glasses of fruit juice from a crystal decanter. "'I've been looking forward to this, Sam,' he said as he handed Sam a glass. "'Your studies have been going well, I hear, and I thought it was time we met properly. "'We have questions for each other, I know, and you'll get to ask them all over the next few weeks. "'No doubt you've been told to have a special question ready for me right now, "'so let's get that out of the way so we can relax properly.' Sam felt a weight go from him. He set his glass down on a side table and didn't hesitate. What's the difference between a magicker and a magician? Straight to the heart of it. Good. That's an important question, and I thank you for it. There have been many true magicians in the history of the world, gifted men and women, but not really that many ever became the fullest quantity meant by that name. Most so-called magicians only ever had bits and pieces of the gift, but I bet you could even name some of the real ones. Well, Merlin, for a start? Definitely one of the lucky ones, Sam, one of the very few. Yourself, Lucius Prand, it seemed appropriate to say it. Lucius gave his wonderful smile. Good of you to say so, but no, Sam, I'm only an illusionist. That's what most magicians are these days. People who create wonderful illusions learn to be clever enough to use people's perceptions against them. That's nothing compared to real magic, of course, just fakery and fancy tricks, a knowledge of optics and sleight of hand, but sometimes it just has to do. But I was a true magician for a short time, Sam. Seems a lot of us have a bit of the gift, just a bit and just for a short time, some evolutionary holdover from when the mind fired differently. It's almost as if evolution started to take us down a different road and then got sidetracked. Lucis paused to top up their glasses. The thing is, most of us lose any traces of this gift by the time we become adults, and never even know we've had it. It comes out in crisis situations mostly. A child lifts a fallen tree off an injured playmate. He could never have lifted such a load before. Suddenly he can. Another kid moves a parked car to free a trapped pet. Never knows how she did it, Another pictures the hand of someone buried in a landslide half a continent away, maybe tells the right people in time. When they check, they find the person still alive, just a hand showing. It's the birthright gift, the power some of us are born with and soon lose. But you had it. I certainly did, for seventeen precious and amazing years. That's an incredibly long time. I was lucky. The memory of it made me become an illusionist. But for a short time, I was a magician, Sam, the real thing. And I am? Sam had to ask it. Why else was he here? Straight to it again, Sam, good. You are, in a small way, and for a short time. You may never have known it before coming to Desider, but there you are. All those tests at school were to prove it passed off as aptitude tests and personality indicators all approved by the school board and the Department of Education. They never knew otherwise. This year alone we've tested everyone at 352 schools so far. You're the only one we've found. Sam was amazed. The only one? Others had bits of a gift but were temperamentally unsuited or had family complications they were better left as they were, undeveloped and unknowing. For their own sakes, really. I hope you understand. So what about my training here, the 6 months tuition? You want to be an illusionist? Not if I'm a magician. Perfect answer. See, we picked well. So let's get back to your question. A magician with a capital M has the gift for life, just like Merlin and Sancreoch and Quendargentis the black mage of Constantinople. But most are what we call magicers, people with a tiny bit of the gift, a single burst they can use once and once only. You hear what I'm saying? In magical parlance, we call them singletons, magicers. And I'm a... a singleton? A magicker? Sam, you are. You have one magic act within you. A single, magnificent spell. One big gush of power. It will all come rushing out at once, and then be gone. Then, then I should wait. I should keep it until I really need it. Doesn't work like that. The older you get, the sooner it'll just fade away. It's gone for most magic as well before they turn twenty. But... but Lucius... Sam couldn't finish. Yes, Sam. You have to take my word that this is how it is. I've spent years researching and searching. For these magickers? Indeed. So you're saying I should use my gift soon? You should. And there's an alternative, a suggestion I would like to put to you now. What's that, Lucius? Sam, I want you to give me your magic. Sam was amazed. Give it? To you? You have so little. One spell at most. A single act, probably limited in all sorts of ways. But whatever it is, however it is, I'd like you to give it to me. The request stunned Sam. He felt a new weight settle on his spirit, a new hard emotion surging up. He quickly realized what it was. Disappointment. Disillusionment. That's why I'm really here, isn't it? Why, we're all really here. Lucius nodded. Yes, Sam, it is. But it's mine, Sam said. My gift. How could I give it? How could that be possible? And behind those words, the unspoken ones. Why should I? How could you ask it? I can't help you there, Sam. That has to be your decision. It truly does have to be your decision. I just wanted to let you know how it is and what I'd like you to do for me. The disappointment Sam felt took all the charm from the room, emptied the excitement and happiness out of the day. He wanted to be gone, needed to be anywhere else. So I can leave whenever I want? I don't have to stay? Desider isn't a prison, Sam. You can leave any time you want. We'll drive you to the station at Milton, even give you a certificate saying you've completed some important vocational training. But I'll lose my chance. Only to be here with me, taking our classes, to have us help you use that gift. Give away that gift, Sam's words sounded bitter. He couldn't help it. And they're illusionist classes, not the real thing. Afraid so, Sam. Once your magic is used up, that's all we have to console us. You don't. I assure you, Sam, I do. "'That's why I'm asking for your magic. "'One illusionist talking to a young man "'who may one day become another. "'Once my magic is gone... "'Once your magic is gone, yes. "'So you can have another taste!' "'Sam said the words savagely. "'He was so angry, so disappointed. "'This wonderful man, wonderful place, wonderful chance "'had been ruined in a moment. "'I... I need to go and think.' Lucius stood. "'Of course you do. "'It's the right thing. "'It's right that you do. "'I wanted to be direct with you about this. "'But Sam, please know, "'whatever you decide will be the right thing.' "'Before Sam quite knew it, "'he found himself out in the corridor again, "'hurrying back towards the front of the house. "'He felt numb. "'He needed to be gone, "'to be out in the day, "'somewhere else, anywhere else.' He rushed down the front steps and sat on his plinth again, but this time he didn't greet Rufio. He couldn't bring himself to. Everything was the same. Everything was different. Desider still stood at the end of its once grand promenade, still loomed there, an impressive two-storied, 19th century mansion on its gentle rise. But now, Sam, all over again how run down it truly was, the lawns in need of mowing, the weeds in the gravel of the approach walk. The gardens to either side were overgrown with briars, too, not just the pedestals flanking the path. So much for Lucha's prand's magic. He couldn't even keep his estate in order. Couldn't even manage a glamour to hide how it really was. Sam left the plinth and set off across the lawns towards the estate's western border. Members of the household staff watched him go. Standing with their rakes and gardening tools, they tracked him with their bright, curious eyes. That just angered Sam further. They stood about with rakes and implements like that. yet always seemed to be doing more talking and daydreaming than actual work. Well, let them watch. Let them wander. Finally, Sam reached the low wall of grey-brown fieldstone that marked as western boundary. He leant on the waist-high barrier, glanced at it stretching this way and that off through the trees, then looked out at the world beyond. His world, sweeping away in fields and suddenly precious vistas. How dare Lucius! How dare he! Sam could so easily jump that wall and be gone, he felt his body tensing for it. Hey, best Sam! The voice reached him through the forest, and when Sam turned, there was that gangly elderly groundswoman, Ren Bartay, heading towards him. She was tall and suntanned, and was whacking the taller weeds with a stick as she came, a big smile on her face. "'Isn't it just a day?' Wren called, grinning away. "'I love this time of year.' And then, when she was right up close, "'Thinking of bailing out, eh, Sam? It's an easy leap.' "'Seriously considering it, Wren?' Sam replied. "'Why not say it?' he figured. "'Like Lucius had said, it was his choice to make.' don't blame you wren surprised him by saying the magic is all used up here is it first interview day you know it is you're the only one with a bit right now if that's true if any of it's true what about the others bettina and susan and cripp and the rest there are eighteen other already given already gone never really had any Wren set down her stick and started checking that the stones were securely packed atop this section of the wall. I can't be the only one. Right now you are, she said, turning back. Lucius would have asked you for it, yes? First interview day. But if they've given theirs, why do they stay on? How can they stand it? Wren looked off through the trees, then pointed to a spot well inside the wall because how they used their magic is still here in almost every case. "'I don't understand. Let me show you.' They started walking back towards Desida together, then made a detour south so they entered the thickest part of the forest. In the dappled autumn light, Sam saw things, structures, amid the trees. To his left there was a cottage, a full-size picture-book gingerbread house with smoke curling from the chimney, smoke that vanished six metres above the chimney pot before ever reaching the open air. That's Bettina Anders' creation, Wren said, the eternal house, how she used her single magic act. Step inside, you'll meet her grandmother Dika, her grandfather Brent. There's always music playing, always something cooking, always a welcome at their table. Couldn't do something like that away from Desida, Sam. Lucius explained it to Bettina very carefully. You can't bring people back from the dead, put them back in the world, without causing a real fuss. Wouldn't be right. That sort of fix-up needs to be done very discreetly. Then Wren pointed to a twisted, and yes, twisting, tower off to the right. It glowed like amber in the soft light streaming through the trees. That's Sophie Ramage's living tower. She would have preferred it in her own backyard, of course, but Lucius made her see that people would gawp and gape and never leave her alone. They'd be forever wanting to know how it was possible, where it came from. She'd never have a moment's peace, what with intruders and souvenir hunters breaking off bits and pieces. Here it stays intact, and hers. She'll be able to come see it any time she wants.' And that's what it's all about, Sam said, more annoyed than ever. Lucius can't do magic anymore, so this way he gets other people's marvels. Talks them out of keeping them. Sam, Sam, Wren said in her wonderful, calming voice. See it another way. These were done by magickers who didn't give Lucius their magic. The things they used it for have been left here for safekeeping. Discarded here, if you think about it. Sam tried to grasp the sense of what Wren was saying. But Lucius wouldn't be able to convince everyone, surely? You're right. So he exercises an important custodial role, a true duty of care, and uses hypnosis. He makes them forget that they ever had the gift in the first place. He can't let them go back into their everyday lives and do some outlandish thing or other, not once they know about the gift... So they leave Dessa to thinking they've been given some training in basic illusionist skills. That's all. They go away and the magic dies in them. Then everything's okay. Sam felt a moment of panic. I still remember all this. He hasn't hypnotized me. You haven't jumped the wall yet. What? If I jump it and run away, I'll forget. Wren grinned. Just kidding, best Sam. Lucius picks his magicers very carefully. "'Mostly it works out fine. "'He rarely has to resort to mind tricks. "'You still have your gift to use. "'He'd rather you use it than lose it. "'He'd rather I give it to him.' "'Oh, yes, he'd much rather that,' Wren said, smiling, "'and before Sam could ask why, added, "'but for a very good reason. "'One I'm duty-sworn never to reveal.' "'That made Sam stop and think. "'He liked old Wren. "'It made the anger subside a bit.' But how can I give my magic to him? Wren's smile never wavered. See what a special boy you are, Sam. You said how can I, not why should I. That's a nice distinction, especially when you're feeling like you are right now. I'm serious, Wren. How could I give it to him? But Wren just put a finger to her lips as if to say, Can't tell, can't tell, keeping a secret. Then she seemed to change her mind a bit. Well, the magicers who worked their spells here certainly didn't do it. Bettina insisted on her cottage. Sophie had to have her tower. Over there you see Christy Paul's magical soda well and Grant Hennessy's nifty golden treasure mill. They certainly didn't give their magic to Lucius. But he would have asked for it. Certainly did. First interview day, every time. But if it's my birthright gift... Mine to use? How can I give it? They seemed to be in a loop. Exactly, Ren Bartay said. How could you give your bit of magic to someone else? Then just like that, without another word, she turned and headed back towards Desider. Sam watched her go, saw the tall spray woman stop to exchange a word or two with other household staff doing grounds work, first Carla, then Geoffrey, then saw her hurry on. What had she told them? What? No way to know, so Sam turned back to the marvels laid out amid the trees, Bettina's cottage with its endless plume of cookfire smoke, and, to hear Ren Barté tell it, endless happiness within, lost happiness found again. Sophie's miraculous twisting tower, curving on itself like so much settling honey, Grant's mill glinting and cycling away, He heard the fizz from Christie's well, too, heard other wonderful sounds coming through the forest from who knew how many other wonders hidden there. Sam realised he could probably spend hours, days, weeks here exploring what else was laid out among the trees, what years of other magicers had chosen. Because they wouldn't give Lucius their magic. Sam marvelled at it. Just how long had Lucius been bringing magicers here from all across the world asking for their bits of the gift? Which made Sam think further. What single thing did Lucius hope for with the piece of magic Sam carried within him? What was it that Wren, or Martin, or Lucius for that matter, wouldn't tell him? Sam couldn't fathom the purpose, of course, but suddenly he did realise something. He would know none of this, Nothing of what magickers were and about this gift he had if it weren't for Lucius, weren't for the testing and the pran scholarship that had brought him here. He owed Lucius for that, and it took the last of the anger out of him. And blossoming up behind that realization came something else. Sam knew right then how he could give his magic to Lucius, and it was so obvious, so simple. He ran, actually ran, back to the main house, making more sudden Sam commotion in the peace of the day. Ground staff stood leaning on their rakes or left off sweeping the paths to watch him rush by. "'What were they thinking?' Sam asked himself as he ran. "'Here comes the magic boy, the first interview day boy. Best Sam. But what did they think? What did they know, smiling and wondering like that?' Sam saw other students watching him too, "'Susan and Cripp and Hagrib were on the south terrace, Sandford and Nettie by the fountain. "'And there, there at the top of the tower, "'leaning on the balustrade, "'yes, was Princess Bettina watching from her safe place. "'Sam didn't care. "'He deliberately turned into the old approach promenade, "'deliberately let her see him run past the plinths and thorn bushes. "'He called, "'Hi there, Rufio,' as he rushed past, "'just as he'd always done,' Then he leapt the steps three at a time and plunged into the cool familiar gloom of Desider's front hall. Martin Mayhew was waiting for him there, of course. ''Best Sam, what's afoot?'' Martin asked. ''I have to see Lucius again, Martin. I need to ask him something.'' ''About your interview?'' ''About my gift.'' ''Then I'm sure he'll see you.'' And Lucius did, almost immediately. Martin needed only a moment to go in first to explain, then Sam was ushered into the leather chairs and Martin was once again closing the door behind him. Sam dropped into the armchair opposite Lucius, just as he had not even an hour before. Lucius had already put aside the book he'd been reading. What is it, Sam? I know how I can give you my magic. You do? And so? I want to. I thank you. How does that work, then? "'You tell me what you want me to do. "'Then I do it for you.' "'But I can't,' Lucius said. "'What's that?' "'I can't come out and tell you, Sam. "'It's an oath I took, a condition I imposed on myself, "'a rule of governance from way back. "'I'm not allowed to tell. "'It all has to come from you. "'You're the magicka in command right now. "'I'm just an illusionist.' "'But you can hypnotise me.' Plant an activating command of some kind. Then, instead of days and weeks of learning how to use an activation spell one time only, you put in a trigger so that all I have to do is say what I want. What I think you want. You can at least do that. True, I can. I've done it before. I know, I guessed. That's what you're the expert at, making it quick and easy, helping it happen. Lucius smiled. So how do we proceed, best of Sam's? I still can't say what I want you to do with your gift. Lucius, I think I know what you want. Lucius's eyes glittered with unreadable emotion. Oh yes. So go ahead, plant the hypnotic cue. I planted it earlier today, while you were watching my burning city there. Sam glanced quickly at the strange shape turning in the fireplace, then looked back. Then call the desider staff together. Lucius's eyebrows lifted in surprise. The staff. The three teachers, too. All of them. Have them gather out by the front steps. Lucius turned to an intercom by his chair, pressed a button. Martin, decider one, ring the bell. And moments later, the bell in the tower started tolling over and over. Out in the fields, back in the kitchen and service rooms and private quarters the household staff would be leaving off what they were doing and heading for the front of the house. They were all assembled there when Lucius and Sam stepped through the big double doorway at the top of the steps. The group stood as if for some anniversary photograph, smiling, attentive and curious, Martin Mayhew and Ren Barté among them. Sam grinned back. He was right. In an instant he'd counted them and knew he was right. Eight household staff, three teachers, a total of eleven. Eleven of the twelve plinths. Sam gestured then, just as he'd seen magicians and wizards and sorcerers do all his life in countless picture books and movies. Make room for number twelve, he shouted. Rufio, come out here, it's your turn. There was scratching and scrambling in the thicket. Then out came Rufio, already in house fatigues, "'limber and strong, and smiling with happiness. "'Welcome to the staff, Rufio.' "'Thank you, best Sam,' Rufio called back with his brand-new voice, "'and did just that, moved in among the others. "'That was when Sam noticed that next to him Lucius was weeping, "'that tears brightened his cheeks in the late morning light. "'Thank you, best Sam. "'Thank you for this.' That means I'll have to stay on and become an illusionist now, doesn't it, Sam said. Oh, it does, Lucius agreed. And I'm sure that's what Rufio and our friends here want more than anything.
2: The greatest magic of all is giving it away to the benefit of others. Apropos of this time of year, I'd say... And in the spirit of giving, we're going to run a promo for Eric Luke's new project, Interference. Something wants
3: in. To your head.
2: Through this audiobook.
3: Quillhammer.com
1: Just
2: click play. Just click play, indeed. That promo is both creepy and compelling. And with that, we come to the end of another show. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license, which means you can download the contents and share it all you like, but don't change it or sell it. All other copyright remains that of the authors. If you like what you hear at Farfetch Fables, please consider making a donation to the District of Wonders. Buttons are on their website, so please, if you can spare a tuppence or two, go over and give a little something. May your holidays be filled with merriment and cheer. Keep your hearth stoked, your toddies hot, and your friends and family close. Be safe. Until next time, bye now.
3: This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction.
1: You can learn more about The District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
0: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.